you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 3. John 3 will be in verses 16 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles available. There's a rack of them in the back of the sanctuary. If you don't own one, we'd love to give you one as a gift. Um, as a rule, we'll just be moving through passages of the Bible for our sermons, trying to hear what God says in his word. And it's much, much easier to pay attention and to actually get something out of it if you have the words in front of you. So uh, I highly encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to pick one up. We'll uh, do something we haven't done as a pattern, but it's good for us to do every now and then. Let's all stand together uh, as we hear God's word read. Let's stand together. John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This is what scripture says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You know, I'll just pause right here. I didn't specify. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and read it together since you guys want to. It's great. <laughs> I'll read it at a different meter. It'll be easier, I promise, okay? Let's just, we'll rewind it. We'll start verse 16 and we'll do this all together. This is good, okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for being good partners in ministry there. You may be seated. <laughs> 100 Christmases. That was the name of the testimony that was given right before my first sermon as a newly minted pastor. I was sent to a local uh, assisted living facility where the large number of our congregants uh, lived on Christmas Day to deliver a sermon in their worship service. Now, it was one of those deals where I really didn't have to do anything except show up. The chaplain had arranged everything, the music, the uh, scripture readings, even, yes, this testimony. So there, Precious and I sat Christmas morning on the front row, waiting for our turn in this order of service. And uh, right before it was my turn, a little dear old saint, walked up front, grabbed the microphone, and started talking. She told us that she was 100 years old, which meant that this was her 100th Christmas. It quickly became apparent that this was not your average 100-year-old. She was uh, very clear in thought and speech. Her testimony was riveting. It had parallels in it and a rhythm to it. 
as time went on, as the minutes went on, it, you felt yourself building towards something until finally there was a crescendo of thanks to God for all the many blessings she'd had over a hundred years. Now, this was an assisted living facility, so at the end, people didn't hop up and clap or anything, but they did say thank you, and it was obvious she had them eating right out of her hand. Now, I was caught in the moment, too, and when I finally came back to my senses, I thought to myself, oh, no. <laughs> How do I follow that? <laughs> and being a young preacher, you know, the sermon I had written was clearly not the most eloquent, not the best put together. And yet I'm so thankful it was on the text in front of us this morning, John 3.16. Because this text has a way of pushing right to our hearts with the beauty of the love of God. Doesn't matter how inexperienced of a preacher one might be, it'd be pretty hard for someone to hear this text preached and not come away someone that's encountered the beauty of God. Now, it's not to say there aren't challenges as a preacher. Now, John 3.16 is a very familiar text. My guess is uh, not just reading it along with me. If I had just uh, asked you to quote it or started with the first few words, most of us would have most of or if not the whole verse memorized. For God so loved the world. You know, it's plastered on mugs and bumper stickers. People hold it up at stadiums. At least in the past, they did more than they do now. It's possible that it, is so familiar that it falls into the category, category of familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. That we know about it so commonly that we fail to actually feel the bite of it. This is a counterintuitive love of God. This is a beauty that's not something that any one of us would have dreamed up. And my prayer this morning is that God would help us to feel the weight of what is being said of this astounding love of God. We'll study the passage in two sections, verses 16 and 17. We'll see God's love for the unlovely and the sending of his son, Jesus. Then in verses 18 through 21, our second section, we'll see God's requirement of us that we have faith in Jesus. And all this, we'll see the counterintuitive love of God, that he would love the unlovely and ask only of us faith. Let's begin in verses 16 through 17. God's love for the unlovely. If you were with us last week, we got to be a fly on the wall as Jesus and one of the spiritual heavyweights in his time had a discussion about the human heart. A man was named Nicodemus. He was a man of the Pharisees. He came to Jesus trying to size him up, not realizing that Jesus was going to look right through him and point out his greatest need. The need not just for a new celebrity to follow or just for a new start to his life, but the need for an entirely new heart. Now the passage we're in this morning builds right off of that passage. Verse 16 starts with that little word, for. Whenever you see a four, it's a good idea to ask what it's there for. You might describe it as the last section was describing this need for and the reality of the new birth. And verse 16 now tells us God's motivation for the new birth. Now, it's not clear exactly who's talking in this section. Maybe you've got a Bible with red letters in it. 
Some of the translations put this section, 16 through 21, in red letters. Uh, what you need to know is that your Bible translations uh, make that, uh, put the text either in red or black as an interpretive decision. The original uh, Greek manuscripts we have don't have red and blue letters. And so we're trying to figure out who's talking and who's not at some points along the way. Uh, I happen to think that verses 16 through 21 is actually the Apostle John, the author of the book of John, uh, letting us under the hood to see how it is and why it is that God does this work of remaking us from the inside out. Regardless of whether it's Jesus talking or John talking, though, it's clear that this section is focused on the motivation behind why God would do this thing. Why would he give us a new heart in the first place? And in a word, it's love. It's love. For God so loved the world. Now right in that half sentence, we have several ditches we have to avoid to actually hear what John is saying. First, he says, for God so loved. As soon as I start talking about the love of God, we have to watch out for our modern notions of God's love that we bring to the Bible as an assumption. Many people think of the love of God as being something that is shown only for the especially lovely. That is, God loves people. He loves those who are worthy of his love in some way. Whether they do certain religious rituals or they follow a code of morality or we might just say they are a good person. That the love of God is really expressed towards those who are especially lovely. It's exclusive in that way. Others would speak of God's love in a a much more indiscriminate way. They would say that the love of God is really a form of accepting us for who we are. You might hear someone say God's love is uh, totally without uh, any conditions to it. You can see that come out when someone is criticized for something in their life, maybe a lifestyle, and they say, who are you to tell me how to live? Isn't your God a God of love? See the assumption there that God's love is saying that we are all lovely just as we are with no need for change. Now, the problem with both of these is these conceptions of God's love start here on earth with us. But in John's gospel and through the Bible, love, and especially God's love, doesn't start here on earth. It starts in heaven. Remember back to me the beginning of John's gospel, John chapter 1. John started this huge, expansive gospel with going back before time itself started to eternity, to the inner workings of what we call the Trinity, the community of God and the Father, Son, and Spirit. If you have your Bible, flip back with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I want to show you that this love starts with the relationship that God has in his own community of the Trinity. Read verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word has eternally been with the Father. This word, the one who became Jesus, was Always the delight, the apple of his father's eye. Ever living in perfect harmony and joy with each other. A a, a true love story that before time began that goes on and on and on. 
The amazing thing is this love amongst the community of the Father, Son, and Spirit is so full, so complete, that it actually spills over and into the world that they make. See, the love of God that's described here isn't a love that God has for us because there's something lacking within God that he just has to have us in heaven to have filled up. It's a love that comes from God's very nature himself, itself. A God so full of love that he can't help but have it spill over into our lives. We have some work to do when we, have, when we wonder what God's love is about. We also have work to do when we hear that word world. More often when we use the word world, we are describing every human being that exists on the planet Earth at a given time. So for instance, the CEO of Facebook has his mission to connect the world. And without what he means is there should be no person living that does not have access to internet and more importantly, to Facebook on that internet. Now, that's not all altruism there. There's stockholders behind that. But uh, there's a reason why Facebook is flying drones over the middle of undeveloped Africa because they're trying to get every single person with access to the internet so they can be on Facebook. That's often how we use the term world. Yet when John uses the word world, the vast majority of the time, as Dr. D.A. Carson puts it, he's not thinking of the bigness of the world. He's thinking of the badness of it. It, it certainly is a true thought that God loves every human being on the planet Earth. If you were with us over summer when we were studying the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught that God sends the sun and the rain on both his friends and his enemies. The fact that we have air in our lungs is testament to the fact that God loves us in what we call common grace. And yet the fact that God loves the world here is speaking an astounding reality, not because of the bigness of the world, but because of the badness of it. Let me show you two spots in John's Gospels of many, John's Gospel of many different spots where you can see this use of world coming out. Flip with me to John 17 and verse 14. John 17, verse 14. Jesus here, near the end of his ministry in what we call the high priestly prayer, is praying for his disciples. And in this prayer, he reveals the relationship between the disciples and himself and with God. He says this of his disciples in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Now it would be a mistake to think that Jesus is saying that the disciples have ceased to be members of the human race or that they are no longer located on the planet Earth. What he's saying is that the disciples have left the humanity in opposition to God, sinful, rebellious humanity. They have left that and they've been transferred into the kingdom of God. So even as they live in the world, on earth, among other humans, they're not of the world. That is humanity in opposition to God. Uh, another one quickly and uh, flip back to John chapter 1 and verse 10. John 1, verse 10. 
Speaking of Jesus coming into the world, it says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. See that? When John uses the word world, what he's most often meaning, and what he's meaning in verse 16, is humanity as rebellious, guilty, wicked creatures shaking their fist against the creator. You see, friends, the astounding thing about this love is not that this love is unconditional, not that this love is so broad it includes every single person. The astounding thing is this love is for the unlovely. Think about how it is that your heart shows love. Maybe you're walking through a furniture store and you come across just the right couch. And you're going to drop a ton of money to make sure it ends up in your living room. And you remark to your friend, man, I just love that couch. What you're saying, there's something about that couch that's irresistible. I just have to have it. So much so I'm going to drop a whole bunch of money to make it happen, right? Or, or someone that is with their romantic interest and they turn to them and look deep into their eyes with sincerity and warmth and say, I love you. Now, what they're saying in that moment is there's something about you that I find attractive, even irresistible, that I have a, a deep connection to you. There's something about you that's lovely. And yet with the love of God, God looks down at a world, a whole humanity that wants nothing to do with him and has ran from him at every opportunity. And he says, I love you. Not because you're lovely, but because I am love. Friends, do you see how astounding that is? That God would love a world that hates him. Well, how is that love demonstrated? Well, that's where we get the next phrase. For God so loved the world in this way that he gave his only son. Jesus has already been called the son of God repeatedly in John's gospel. I think at this point, we are supposed to connect the dots back to a story you're probably familiar with in Genesis. There's a man named Abraham who was given a promise by God that he would be the father of many nations. There was only one problem. Abraham and his wife Sarah could not have children. They were old. God had not opened her womb. So one day, when the miracle happened, the true miracle baby, and they had a son, a, bo a boy was born, understandably, their hearts were full of love. And yet, you know how the story goes. God asked of Abraham, take your son, your only son, and go to the mountain and sacrifice him to me. What a horrible thing to be asked to do. How painful that decision must have been. Yet Abraham trusted God, believed him. He, he went up the mountain and he was going to follow through with it to kill his own son and at the last moment, God sent an angel and prevented him from experiencing that sorrow. He, he prevented him from killing his son and instead substituted a goat for the sacrifice. What John is saying is the thing that God spared Abraham, he did not spare himself. The son with whom the father delighted. The son from whom eternity passed, the father poured out his joy toward and received joy back from. That son which he loves like no other, the father willingly gave 
to rescue a world that hates him. Oh, what love is this? We sing a song pretty regularly here at College Park Castleton called The Love of God by a guy named Frederick Lehman. The first stanza reads this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned for his sin. Pardoned from his sin. What love of God that we we get to celebrate every Christmas and we get to experience as those who have come to God through Christ Jesus. We'll come back to the second half of verse 16 in a second. But I want to show you that verse 17 clarifies that this sending of the Son is really part of God's rescue plan. He's not doing this to judge the world, to condemn it. He's doing it to save it. Verse 17, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In other words, Jesus' reason for coming, the reason the Father sent him, is to save his enemies, to save the unlovely. Brothers and sisters, have you thought about the gift of salvation like this in a while? Have you thought about the fact that God saved you, not because you were a prize, not because you're especially good, not because you're lovely, but because God himself is love. That should give you a fresh dose of joy, even as we sing Christmas songs this Christmas season. So much truth packed in them about Jesus coming to this earth and what he came to do on this earth, going to the cross to die for our sins. Realize also that this changes the way we love other people. If the reason we are loved by God is not that we have somehow earned or merited it, but quite the contrary, that we are just undeserving recipients of a gift, then we can be free and indiscriminate about how we love others. Uh, I know it's Christmas coming up, and that means you're going to be around family. And uh, family is wonderful. Lots of blessings with family. But family is also hard, isn't it? Being around people that know you well, Maybe you're going to have one of those relatives that brings back something that should have lied buried decades ago. Maybe someone who knows just the right way to push your buttons is going to go out of their way to do so. And in that moment, you're just thinking, oh, here we go again. Doesn't mean that you don't know that they're misbehaving. It doesn't mean that they're especially lovely in that moment. But, oh, friends, if you are recipient the love of God. Can't you pour out some of that love to someone else, especially someone as unlovely as you? The love of God. What a concept. Now, does that mean we just sit back and if this is God's work to do this rescue plan, then all we do is sit back and receive? Well, well, that's not quite how it works. And verses 18 through 21 shows us that God requires something of us also. First, we saw God's love for the unlovely. Now we see God's requirement, faith in Jesus. Now, I've already mentioned sometimes people speak of 
uh, <clears throat> speak of salvation or God's love as something unconditional. And th there's a sense where that's true. You can never earn God's salvation. And yet, there is something that God requires or, of anyone that would be saved. That they have faith in Jesus. The second half of verse 16 that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Notice, the one that does not perish and has eternal life is the one who believes. Quite literally, all the believing ones. Anyone who believes. Look down in verse 18, the same theme. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. How amazing is it, friend, that God would give you a gift that all you must do is reach out with an empty hand of faith. All you must do is trust Jesus enough to receive salvation. When we talk about faith, very often we think of uh, different faiths. You know, there's Islam and there's Christianity and there's Buddhism. There are different, different ways people express their religious or spiritual practice. And yet when we talk about the idea or the concept of faith that's required for salvation, it's much, much closer to our uh, uh, word for trust. The idea of believing and having faith in someone is much closer to the idea we have of trusting someone in a relying sort of way. So uh, I already tried this in the first service, so I'm pretty sure it's going to work this time. Um, now, if I were preaching in an older church, Let's say a church, one of those historic churches, and uh, as you're walking across the platform, it creaks and groans, and there's a little sponginess to the wood. Um, I probably wouldn't do this. Okay? Now, the reason I did that is because this platform is very sturdy, and it's been re-shored up recently enough that I have confidence that it's going to hold me up even if I do something stupid, like uh, jump up really high with my slight frame and see if it'll break, right? Um, now, in that moment, I'm having a sort of faith in the platform. I'm trusting that it will bear my weight. What is required for us to receive this astounding love of God for the unlovely? It's just to trust Jesus, to truly trust him, that he truly is the way out of our condemnation, the way out from the wrath of God justly poured out on us for our sins, that he truly can save us now and forever. We're told that whoever believes will not be condemned. We're also told the flip side's true, that whoever does not believe is condemned already. It may seem narrow to you that God would provide only one way to come to him like this, as if God owes us that any sort of sincere religious practice should lead to him. And yet, friend, do you, have you realized how astounding it is that God has provided a rescue plan at all? There was recently a spat of wildfires out west. I was online, I watched a video of a father and son literally driving through a, a forest that was burning down. It was extremely scary. There were trees falling. At one point, they got to a spot in the road where the burning trees are blocking the way, and they had to choose whether they would try to move the trees or back up. Uh, they eventually made it to a lake where they abandoned the car, and a boat happened to be going by, and they swam out to the boat, abandoned their car, and escaped the flames and watched as their car was consumed. How insane would it be 
to demand that there be multiple ways out from a conflagration like that? How insane would it be to demand that God provide us with multiple ways of escape? We should be delighted that there is even one way out. We're told here very clearly that only by believing in Jesus might we escape the wrath of God and find the love of God instead. And yet so many of people will not receive that love of God. And in fact, we're told they will not receive it because they do not want to be saved, that their hearts would rather run from God than run to him. That's what we see in 19 and 20. These are some of the most chilling verses in the whole Bible. Friend. I don't know if you've taken the time to really meditate on them, but think about what this says about how depraved and insane the human heart really is. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What John is telling us here is that our hearts far from what Disney tells us, are not a trustworthy guide. Our hearts will not lead us to lasting joy and peace. Our hearts will not one day give us all of our dreams. Our hearts love the shadows. Our hearts love to lie to us. As the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is a deceitful thing above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Have you realized that, friend, that your heart regularly lies to you? Or think about what happens when you lose control of your mouth for just a second and you say something that is cutting and cruel to someone. Is your first thought to say, oh, I have sinned so greatly before God. I have wounded this person. I must make this right. I must apologize. Or does your heart tell you, you know what? They deserved that. Someone finally told them what they had coming. Or, or think about another time where maybe you notice something that we would call a sin. And your heart immediately, as soon as you realize it's a sin, starts saying, playing the comparison game. Oh, you know, yeah, that's a sin, but it's not as bad as the sin of that other guy that I know. Or how many times has your heart told you that you don't need to worry about bringing that sin to light by confessing to someone? You don't need to tell your small group. You don't need to tell your accountability partner because if you just ignore it and just let it lie, that it'll take care of itself. How many times has your heart told you because someone has wounded you, you have license to turn around and wound someone else? See, friends, our hearts, they love the dark. They hate to be dragged out to the light, to be exposed for what they are. A factory of lies, a vile place that unless God intervenes, will keep us from coming to the light of Christ. How insane is it that people in such need of a rescue would do everything they can to hide from their Savior. 
Friends, that's what the Bible tells us about ourselves. We're not people that are searching diligently to find a way of salvation. We're not good people with just some bad tendencies or with a little need of education. We are fundamentally rebels that will spit in the face of God and skulk off to the shadows to try and avoid him, the only one that could possibly save us from the mess we've gotten ourselves into. But the gospel is, the good news of the gospel is, if we will drag our wicked hearts out from the shadows and into the light, oh, it'll feel like we're dying, but we will truly find life. Because Jesus gives us forgiveness of sins. He paid the penalty for them on the cross. Jesus gives us a new life and a new heart. The very resurrection power that raised him from the dead will do that within you. Now Jesus turns us into something else into a people that live and walk in the light. That's what we're told in verse 21. He says, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I love the way that's written. It's obvious that God gets the credit for even the good things we do as Christians. God gets the credit for being the one who initiated this love for rebels. He gets to be the credit for the fact that we get saved at all. He gets credit for putting a new heart within us. And then when we turn around and live in a way that's consistent with what he teaches, you might say living in the light, we're told it is seen that those works have been carried out in God. Top to bottom, it's a work of God within us. Friends, isn't this incredible news? That we don't have to hide in the shadows anymore. That we can be open about the fact that we are sinners. Because we know that the life and light of Jesus is waiting there to find us. And to truly give us the love of God. Maybe you're here this morning. You're not a Christian. I don't know what your life has been like up until now. Maybe you've gone through some really hard things along the way. And you find it hard to think well of yourself. Maybe you've gotten advice even that you need to tell yourself good things about yourself. That you need to think that you are intelligent and worthwhile. That you need to love yourself in a way. A friend, it's certainly true you have value because you were made in God's image. But far from being the way that you will actually find lasting joy and peace by just sweeping all of your weaknesses and yes, even sins under the rug, you're actually closing yourself off from the only thing that can truly change your life. You're hiding in the shadows from the very light that you need. Friend, we Christians don't think that we are somehow better than you. We're just people that have realized our sin problem is so bad that if God doesn't deal with it, we have no hope. We've gone public with that fact. And we found Jesus to be a reliable Savior. If if you're here this morning and you have not yet come to Jesus in this way, you can do that today. You'll find all of your shame, all the condemnation, all the fear, all of it, it'll be wiped away. Because Jesus is a stronger Savior than you are a sinner. For those of us who are here this morning who are Christians, let's 
let ourselves be floored by this counterintuitive love of God. You know, there are so many things, even in our lives as believers, where it'd be easy to despair over, like, I've made the same mistake again. And yet, if we've come to Jesus, there's no condemnation for us. And the love of God has truly been given to us. Love of God. It's for the unlovely. And all it requires is that we respond in faith. Earlier, we read the first stanza from that song, The Love of God, by Frederick uh, Lehman. The third stanza was an interesting story to it. Uh, Lehman was writing the song, and he got the first two stanzas down on paper, and suddenly he got writer's block. It was back in the day when if you didn't have three stanzas of the song, you didn't have a song. So he decided he would just sit on it. This was back in the early 1900s. And one day he and his daughter were traveling through Germany, and for whatever reason, they took a tour of a uh, mental health facility, an asylum. They came to a bed that was recently emptied, someone who had died. And next to that bed, scrawled on the wall, was a poem. As soon as Lehman saw it, he knew he had found his missing stanza. Some of the form has changed, but this is the substance of that poem. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. What astounding love is this, brothers and sisters, that we would be loved by the God of the universe, even though we are rebels, fit of his wrath. In a moment of clarity, a person in an insane asylum was able to write those words. How much more should we, who have God's word to instruct us, be able to praise God for his love now and off into eternity. Let's pray.